Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. It's again a weekend drive somewhere out of the house edition. And I've decided I want to start a new chapter. We were doing around chapter 10 about logical relations and parametricity. And um, I personally got a lot out of trying to figure out and learn more about this stuff and share it with you on the air. So I hope, uh, I hope in the process it was uh, interesting and helpful for you as well. Um, despite the fact that I, um, as always, I really, I like want to have a t-shirt printed up that says, I'm not an expert in this. <laughs> That's like, I mean, but when you're doing research, right? I mean, you're, you're always trying to go into something new. So if you, if you really know everything there is to do to know about it, well, maybe you should try something else. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, I want to start a new chapter, chapter 11, and, um, I'm calling it, uh, it's about relational type theory. And uh, so this chapter, I'm going to talk about relational type theory. And um, I, as you know, from if you listen to my podcast bef- much before, I don't generally talk about my own research too much. Um, I mostly am just talking about other stuff I've been learning and studying. But now I want to stop and talk about uh, a new idea that I've been developing uh, for a while. And it's... And it really flows right out of logical relations and parametricity, which is why this is a pretty good um, segue to, to go into that from, from the chapter we did before. Um, and in fact, the reason I was doing that chapter before was I was trying to learn more about the topic for purposes of this relational type theory. Well, actually, I didn't realize where the, the thing was headed. But um, anyway, so I... So this is what I'm going to try to talk with you about. And I'm, this stuff is like hot off the presses. I'm, it's not, well, it's still sizzling on the griddle or whatever other metaphor we want to apply. Uh, it's, it's far from done. And I, I did, it occurred to me this morning as I was thinking, hmm, I wonder if I would dare to try talking about this now. It's like, what if I discover in three weeks that, oh no, some basic assumption I was making is wrong or something, some part of this just doesn't make sense. And so I hope that doesn't happen. I think it's looking pretty solid. Uh, so... Anyway, um, let's start in on it. And so the basic idea of um, what I'm calling relational type theory is that it's to try to devise a type theory based on the binary relational semantics for types that we've been talking about again and again in this previous chapter on logical relations, right? So um, just to review that a little bit for purposes of this relational type theory discussion, the uh, we saw, and it's it's a you know well known subject in programming languages theory and um, this particular you know branch of type theory and computational logic that uh, you know we have types like good old you know we've talked about types many times in this podcast like good old function types you know you could have like a bool to bool function for example um, and uh, and one of the basic semantics that you can give to types is, uh, is a sort of, um, well, a basic form of semantics is a realizability semantics. Uh, and it, I say basic, <laughs> some people who are listening to this might shake their heads because there are other preferred, other people prefer different forms of semantics for types, like in particular categorical semantics. And I'm terribly sorry, but I'm just not expert enough in that to attempt to talk about that. Um, but, uh, but realizability semantics is the one I know better. And, you know, it's, uh, and just to review what that says for a cell, like for a function type, um, you know, we say that a term is going to realize a type A arrow B 
if for all realizers of A, the term T, let's say T, so we say T realizes A or B, if for all realizers of A, T, all realizers, let's say little a, of the type big A, T applied to this argument little a, realizes the type big B. So it's like, um, uh, a real, you know, realizing a function type means you map realizers of the domain part of the function type to realizers of the codomain part of the function type. And when we say you map, it means that if you apply the term to the argument, then you get the realizer of the codomain type. So um, another way to say it is it's kind of just saying functions, syntactic functions, uh, syntactic function types are getting interpreted as semantic function types. But there's this kind of like little intermediate step, right? Because you're saying you're, instead of saying it's a, instead of saying um, uh, I'm, my meaning, you know, I, my meaning of an A or type A or B is not a set of mathematical functions from A to B. Although you can go that route too. And in this Reynolds paper we talked about at the end of chapter 10 that he takes that route. But in this realizability semantics you say um, the meaning of a arrow B is it's a set of terms. It's a set of terms that have a certain behavior. They map arguments that have the behavior described by A, when we're talking about A arrow B, to out inputs of, the, so they map inputs that satisfy the, meet the description uh, given by A to outputs that satisfy the description given by B. So types describe behaviors of programs. Okay, I find this amazingly appealing as a computer scientist because I like programs and to understand what types mean in terms of behavior of programs sounds great to me. And anyway, that's realizability semantics, okay? And we talked about this, I don't have no prayer to remember what chapter that was long ago. But, and then the most recent chapter we said, well, there's actually this other way you can go, uh, which is instead of... Um, so when we're talking about realizers, we're really saying we're going to interpret the, the type as a unary relation, okay? I mean, that's just another way of saying a set of terms, right? What's the difference between a unary relation and a set of terms? Uh, not, not too much, if anything. Uh, so the intriguing idea that you find in Reynolds' paper, basing on you know, going back to some earlier work by Plotkin and Tate and others, um, much of which work is, is uh, bloody hard to read and understand. <laughs> uh, so you find the idea of saying, well, instead of having interpreting a type as a unary relation, right? So what I'm saying, unary relation, again, just to make the point a little more clear, I hope, right? So I'm saying, when I say T realizes A or B, I'm thinking of interpreting A or B, a or B as, a, as a property of terms. Like, what, is, what property do terms need to have um, to be uh, considered in the meaning of that type. Okay, and so a property is a unary relation, right? It's just reading, it's a, it's a set of individual things, okay? Now, the idea that these authors I mentioned proposed was to go from a unary relation to a binary relation, okay? So we're going to say, now the meaning of a type A or a B is not a set of terms, but it's going to be a set of ordered pairs of terms, Okay, and the intuition now is that the type, you know, with, with the realizability semantics, the type is telling you a, a way, it's sort of describing a certain pattern of behavior of terms. Okay, 
So, right, so if you have a bool-to-bool function, you know, the realizability semantics says um, that's describing terms which if you give them a Boolean, then they'll, as an input, then they'll give you a Boolean back as an output. Okay? It sounds, I mean, when you say it that way, it sounds so innocuous, right? It's, and it is. It's like perfectly simple, sensible idea. Now, when you go to the binary semantics, now it, it's a little more mind-twisting, I think, uh, to understand intuitively what we're talking about. But we're, one th idea I'm trying on for understanding this is we're thinking about the type as now describing a certain, um, as well, it's describing a certain relationship between terms, okay? And what, you know, what relation is it? You know, in the case of um, bool, arrow, bool, we're talking about um, bool, arrow, bool now, we're talking about relating two terms if given um, equal Boolean inputs, they produce equal Boolean outputs. Okay, so um, in that particular case, bool, arrow, bool becomes a kind of um, a... Uh, uh, it becomes, it describes a certain kind of equivalence. You know, two functions are two terms are equivalent if you view them as bool-to-bool -bool functions. What that means is that if you give them equal Boolean inputs, they're going to spit out equal Boolean outputs. Um, and uh, so, for example, um, I might say, yeah, this still sounds kind of bland. And it's a little bland, but even just that basic example, you would say, um, you know, so, okay, Let's take uh, let's take two example bool to bool functions, okay? And first, let's think about the realizability semantics. Like, take the identity function, just lambda xx, okay? Well, given a boolean input, that definitely produces a boolean output, so that definitely realizes the type bool to bool. Um, and similarly, uh, let's say you take um, let's say you take negation. Okay, well, first of all, negation would also realize the type bool to bool. But say you take, let's say not for negation, okay? Just Boolean negation, let's just say not. If you take not and compose it with not, okay? Right? So that's like, takes a Boolean, inverts it, and then inverts it back. Well, we know that's going to be behave like the identity function, right? Um, well, it will behave like the identity function if you call it on Booleans. If you call it on some weird other stuff then it's not guaranteed to behave like the identity function, right? Because let's think about, we're thinking about, I'm, a, I'm always thinking about lambda-encoded data. So let's think about lambda-encoded Booleans, right? Boole lambda-encoded, or church-encoded true, in, in fact, almost universally. Okay, let's just say church-encoded true is lambda x, lambda y, x, okay? And negation takes a Boolean, you know, so other each Boolean takes in two values, and if it's true, it returns the first one, if it's false, it returns the second one. And to do a negation, you take a Boolean and you apply it to false and true. I mean, this is one way to do it. It's a nice, simple way to do it. You apply it to false and true. Um, because if the Boolean's true, then it'll return the first thing, which you gave it as false. If the Boolean's false, it'll return the second thing, and you gave that as true. So sure enough, it'll invert it. So if you take, so the function, let's say you're composing not with itself, okay? It not described as I just, did and said. So um, if you take, I got lambda b, I take in a boolean, 
Okay, and I apply that Boolean to false true. That's supposed to invert once. Then I take that whole value and apply it to false true. Okay, that piece of code I just described is not beta 8 equivalent to the identity function. But it is equal to the identity function at type bool to bool. So if I view bool, if I view types as relations, binary relations, then not composed with not is related by the bool to bool relation. It's related with the identity function. Okay, and so and we're basically saying that means um, in this case that's giving us some kind of equivalence. Like those two functions are equivalent. Any piece of code that um, uh, that takes in a bool-to-bool function is going to give you the same answer back using that function if the function is identity or if the function is not composed with not. Um, okay, so hmm, looks like my review of these concepts took me all the time I have for the moment, and so I'm going to stop for now. But uh, this is, you know, this is all just review of stuff we talked about before. But it's kind of focused at this what I'm going to, you know, proposing as a new idea called relational type theory, and it's and it's based on these ideas, and I'll talk about that the next episode. Thanks for listening.